Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. From Matthew, the 21st chapter. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. I'd like to start with a brief survey this morning. If any of you here were a child at any time in your life, please raise your hand. Thank you. Yes, I think that applies to most of us here today. And so you can probably relate quite readily to the behavior of the two sons in the parable in the Gospel lesson today. For who among us can truthfully say that we always fully and willingly cooperated with our parents? Now, depending on your own personal experience, you may identify more closely with one of the sons or the other. Perhaps like the first son, you often gave your parents a hard time, but in the end, you usually ended up doing what was asked and expected of you. Or maybe you were more like the second son, agreeable and pleasant to their face, but when their backs were turned and you were out of the house, you got away with whatever you could, shirked responsibility, and undermined their authority. Now, if I had to give an answer to the question about my own behavior as a young person as to whether I was more like the first son or more like the second son, in order to be fully truthful, I would have to say, yes, I was. (laughs) All born as fallen sinners, we inherit the stain and the scar of sinfulness from the very parents through whom God gave us life. Therefore, we all found ways to give them a hard time and to let them down. Now, it would be very easy to take this gospel lesson for today and to try to turn it into a life lesson on good behavior, to point out how these two sons had misbehaved, to encourage all of us to do a better job of respecting authority, obeying parents, and leading righteous lives. After all, it's quite clear to us that both of these sons broke the fourth commandment, the one about honoring father and mother. And they also broke the eighth commandment on bearing false witness. Now, the message that you should behave better and you should show your love for your earthly parents and your heavenly father this way will probably get preached from a lot of pulpits today. And while such a message is quite true and certainly is also important, it also misses the point. To preach that this parable primarily calls for obedience to earthly and heavenly fathers is putting a human perspective on a divine revelation. And worse yet, it would be turning today's gospel into law. Now don't get me wrong, there's plenty of law in today's lesson. First of all, there are those chief priests and elders to whom Jesus is speaking. Many of these are Pharisees, and they thought that they were the human embodiment of the law, the heirs apparent, the theological offspring to Moses, the lawgiver. So much so that they created and they required and they tried to live by hundreds and hundreds of very detailed regulations. 
Their intent was to show God and their fellow Jews their piety and their visibly outward behavior so that they would be respected by men as being righteous and receive special favor from God, perhaps even favor to the point of salvation. The whole context for this parable is that these leaders were insisting that Jesus tell them by what authority He was teaching and preaching and healing and driving merchants and money changers from the temple and from whom He had been given that authority. You see, they were exercising their positions under the law, demanding that He satisfy their inquiries. There's also the matter of the sons in the parable. They were not following the law either by disobeying their father. As you know, Jewish society was highly patriarchal. The eldest male in the household had complete authority over all others in the family. Now, it was no small thing then for a son to be disobedient to the father. And so when Jesus asked which of these two sons was doing his father's will, the leaders probably thought that Jesus was throwing them a very easy and obvious question a big fat pitch that they could hit right out of the park. Their unhesitating answer, though, might have been in accordance with the law in the narrow sense, but it brought the very condemnation of that law down upon them. Jesus uses this parable of the two sons as an analogy for those who possess two different types of righteousness. On the one hand, there are the blatant and obvious sinners. Those who are outcasts from the respectable crowd due to their humanly measured enormity of all their offenses. Tax collectors and prostitutes and all those others whose behavior didn't approach that of the more religious. They also didn't even meet the minimum standard to remain members of the community of faith. Now you could probably come up on your own with your own list of those you might find unacceptable to be church members in our day and age. Former drug dealers, perhaps. Converted terrorists. Paroled child molesters. Illegal aliens. AIDS patients. The ones that we humanly judge to be too far gone, too offensive, too sinful ever to be brought into our fellowship of forgiven sinners. Those who could only receive righteousness if it were given to them. On the other side of the coin, we have the people who are outwardly religious. They're confident. They're smooth. They're saying all the right words with just the right smiles. They have the right sort of connections, the right sort of appearance and behavior. Those defining righteousness as something that they can achieve on their own, according to their own standards and their own interpretation of the law, you see, they hedge their bets. They smooth out the demands of God's law into something that they hope and even expect that they might be able to fulfill. But when it comes right down to it, we are caught in a trap of our own devising. For when we think that we can adjust God's law to fit our own needs and our own desires and limitations, it ceases to become God's law and it becomes our own law. And at that point, we become a law unto ourselves, which is a rebellion from God. It's anarchy of the soul, and it's the path to eternal destruction and death. The religious ones had been presented with both the law and the gospel in the ministry of John the Baptist. 
They had seen how those who admitted that they were sinners, who were open and honest and desperate enough to confess their bad behavior and to repent of it, had come to hear and had come to believe the good news that John had preached. The news that sins could be forgiven. That a washing by water in God's Word would give them a fresh start and bring them into His kingdom. They no longer needed to live in shame and in fear. The Redeemer of Israel was at hand. The religious leaders had seen this change in the lives of tax collectors and prostitutes and those other sinners who now came to follow Jesus. They had seen what the power of God's Word and repentance and the rebirth of baptism could do for these lives. But these leaders were like the second son in that parable. The one who had given lip service to his father's request, but once the father was out of sight, they did not obey. Like the second son too, they had witnessed the initial rebellion of their brothers and that brother's eventual repentance and obedience. They had shown great interest in John and in his ministry initially. Yet they refused to humble themselves, to repent of their own sins, and to submit themselves to the Father's authority. The key distinction between the religious leaders and the repentant sinners is in the definition and the source of their righteousness. And righteousness is what the Christian's life is all about, make no mistake. Now, we can take the second son's version of righteousness, that is to speak and to act as to how we think God and others want us to. Or like the first son, we can realize that we are guilty of rebuffing and rejecting God's direction and that we must turn back in repentance and toward the certainty of His forgiveness. Just what is our understanding of righteousness anyway? And what is this way of righteousness that Jesus speaks of toward the end of the text. Jesus had said that John the Baptist had shown this way to the people, but the religious leaders had rejected it. How could these men, though, the most religious in all of Israel, not follow the way of righteousness? First of all, we need to understand that, particularly in Matthew's Gospel account, Righteousness goes beyond mere adherence to the law. It is not some sort of a checklist to be filled out to ensure good standing with God. As Jesus had pointed out also earlier in Matthew's Gospel, God's blessings cause the sun to rise and the rain to fall on both the good and on the evil people. Perhaps then we too can find a clue as to righteousness from earlier in Matthew. Go back to near the beginning. Joseph, the carpenter, finds that his bride-to-be Mary is pregnant out of wedlock. Because he is a righteous man, he plans to divorce her quietly to spare her the public disgrace. He is not called righteous here because he is following the law in dissolving the marriage, but because he is showing undeserved mercy to another when outrage and even severe punishment would have been the norm. True righteousness, then, must have something to do with grace, with unmerited favor, of doing the right thing for the right reasons, of putting another's interests above your own. 
Now, a definition such as this goes completely against the grain of both the world and our sinful natures. We like to measure and to compare and to rate ourselves on how we stand in relation to others, whether that be in income or in education or in looks or in skills. We sometimes even attempt to place people on some sort of humanly defined scale of righteousness to rate some as good or righteous and others as bad or evil. Yet this is futile. For even if you were to rate a 9.999 on the scale of righteousness and your neighbor a mere three, you both remain an immeasurably great distance from a God whose holiness and righteousness is infinite. And being an infinite distance from the glory and the comfort and the mercy and the love of a perfect God is a very clear definition, an accurate picture of sin, death, and hell. Those who are called righteous by Jesus are not those who are righteous in their own eyes or in the eyes of others. In fact, those who are self-consciously righteous exclude themselves from God's saving activity in Christ because they possess a false and a self-generated righteousness. This righteousness cannot save them. It may earn the world's approval, that's true, but it yields nothing but rejection and condemnation from the Lord. We cannot hope to be saved by trying to out-Pharisee anyone else. Strictly adhering to an extensive list of do's and don'ts, hoping that God will see through that what good people we are, will not earn us forgiveness, much less eternal life. It too is a futile exercise, for Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes, even those Pharisees' highly disciplined approach to following God's law with all of their extra regulations did not satisfy God's requirements. Nor can we. Perhaps the hymnal can point us in the right direction. Our musical heritage as Lutherans is completely bountiful with hymns that declare the complete insufficiency, the uselessness of our own efforts to become righteous. We do not sing how great our praises must sound to God or how hard we are going to work to meet His demands now that we are converted. Rather, we sing with humility and with thanksgiving and with wonder at His merciful and His undeserved love, His gracious pardon which covers, covers even your sins and even mine. In the words of one particularly beautiful and appropriate hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Sinners who are called by Jesus then claim no self-righteousness worthy of His attention or His praise or His reward. Rather, He provides us our righteousness out of His righteousness. And He has that righteousness on account of His divine nature and account of His complete obedience as sonship. He did not refuse His Father only to change His mind like that first son in the parable. Nor did He tell His Father that He would go off to work in the vineyard and then blow it off like the second son. No, this one and only true perfect Son, in Paul's words from today's epistle lesson, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here then is the one who did his father's will, whose true obedience was neither one of reluctant repentance nor of deceitful lip service. Here for you and me is righteousness that is made flesh. Only through this man of righteousness can we be reconciled with the Father. Only through this man of righteousness can our sins be wiped away. And only through this man of righteousness can we be declared innocent, clear of all of our wrongs. This righteous Jesus calls sinners, not the self-righteous. Jesus calls you, not those who are convinced of their moral superiority. Jesus calls you, the individual who is convinced of their own unworthiness, but is even more certain of the perfect merits of Christ. Jesus calls you so that your repentance is heard, your faith is confessed, and His righteousness is made yours. Like a physical need for food or for drink, this spiritual longing and need cannot be met from within ourselves. It must be provided to us externally, given to us in the Word of God, which fills us full of hope poured out upon us in the cleansing waters of the font, placed within us in the nourishment of His Holy Supper. It is here in this place that we Christians find the poverty of our spirits turned into the riches of comfort and joy time and time and time again. Here in His house, our hunger and our thirsting for righteousness is satisfied by Him who is righteousness Himself. What of our earlier question then? What is this way of righteousness which John the Baptist came to show Israel? <clears throat> the religious leaders missed it. For Jesus says that they did not believe John and that they were being left out of the kingdom of heaven even as the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the other sinners were entering. It can only be then that this way is the one that those habitual sinners followed, and those proud, self-satisfied leaders rejected. The way of righteousness is repentance. Repentance and belief in the salvation provided to us in Christ Jesus. We rejoice then with all redeemed sinners, ever thankful that His righteousness is made ours through the blood of the one sinless and obedient Son. May we remain in this way of righteousness throughout our daily lives, through repentance and through unfailing trust in God. This is the way which has been shown to us by Him who is the way and the truth and the life, the righteous one of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.